Chad Beckdahl, welcome to the Button Up Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, we're excited to dive in because you have a, a storied history in retail and get some of the, the skincare tips because you ran a store for men's skin. So we're going to get to all of that. But we always like to start off with how you got there. And so you have a, uh, a long career in retail. Mm. And uh, did that start right out of college? And, and at what point, I guess, does fashion become important to you? So I, uh, I went to school in Virginia and studied economics, uh, which doesn't seem like uh, a background that would end up working in fashion. But in reality, it is because it's the study of consumer behavior and the, the sort of theory behind why people make decisions. And I was interviewing with banks uh, when I was graduating from school, and that seemed like a logical choice and something all my peers were doing. But I started meeting with these buyers from stores, and I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting interesting career. You, you're running a business of millions of dollars, and you're kind of this mini entrepreneur within a large company. And I thought that sounded really cool. So I landed a job with Saks Fifth Avenue here in New York in their buying training program. And that was like my entry into fashion. I'd had, you know, like I worked jobs in summer and after school, but they weren't retail jobs. So that wasn't, it wasn't a passion ignited by like folding sweaters at the gap after school. It was, it was more about knowing that I wanted to be in business, but not really knowing what that business was until I landed, uh, landed a role at Saks Fifth Avenue. And, uh, how, how did you land that job? With no no fashion or like apparel or retail experience. Well, I think the when they're recruiting for for trainees for buyers, they're looking at skills. Uh, you have to be good at math. You have to be very analytical, and you have to have some creative skills. Um, but they don't expect you to be like a fashion a fashion designer or. Um, you know, this is this is a long time. This is before blogs. This is certainly before the. You know, I didn't have a phone. This is how old I am. I didn't have a mobile phone until I moved to New York to work for, for Saks Fifth Avenue. It's not something that was just part of uh, life yet. And there were, I, I think Windows, you know, had, an office had just been released. So Yeah, you would have barely been on Excel at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I learned on Lotus 1, 2, 3. I don't think anyone's ever heard of that. But that was the – I think Microsoft copied Lotus 1, 2, 3 to, to create Excel. Uh, so I had those skills. They were analytical. And that was kind of my entry into the business. And I always liked clothing. It was into personal style. And, uh, you know, that I think probably showed when I was meeting with them. So I thought it was cool to be able to, to combine – you know, something that I was interested in, but I didn't really think was a was a job into into a business like that. And when you show up, they put you through this rotation. You spend like a month working in the store on Fifth Avenue. You spend a month working in a buying office, and then you spend a month working with what are called planners. And I found my love was really in the in the buying office, but I could have just as easily ended up in the store field or in planning. And my first job, like day one, was like working at the polo shop at Saks Fifth Avenue and Fifth Avenue. I thought that was the coolest job. Well, that's also the era because I had friends that started around the same time where it was like when you started that job, you had to go out and buy a bunch of suits, right? Because you had to dress the part yes. for the corporate way. And like I had friends that started later and, and that wasn't the case. It was like suits were kind of out of there. But you had to go and buy like the nice suits so that you could look the part and really be that corporate guy. Yeah, and, you, and you're working you know, for 
what you know for Saks Fifth Avenue, which is a luxury company, so you can't sh- show up like schlubby with you know uh, with without showing some style. But you know you're making nothing in terms of pay, so you have to be very uh, scrappy and resourceful in, in finding things. But like I I took a briefcase to work like my first job. That's like how that's how you showed up. It was like a weird. It was a different time. So you had a crash course in retail through Saks Fifth Avenue, yeah. probably one of the best places you could do it, especially at the time. It's like there or Macy's or somewhere like that. And then where do you go from there? When when does it start to, to go up? So I uh, – one of my areas – so I, I bought women's wear. Uh, so I was in uh, petites. Uh, so I bought clothing for, for women who are on the, the shorter side. And then I bought clothing for larger size women, so women size 14 and up. And – in one of those areas, I had a private label area. So I, I um, was buying and developing product for Saks Fifth Avenue collection. And through that process, we would pick fabrics, uh, find sourcing. We'd fit on a model. So we'd go, go through all the steps that are required in product development. And when I started doing that, I was like, that's what I want to do. I don't want to go to showrooms and buy things. I want to like develop what the customer is going to see and that's more interesting so if i can get a role with a company that's going to let me explore that that would be what i'd want to do and i got recruited by abercrombie and fitch uh in columbus ohio and this was back before all the scandal and all the 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 bad things that we know about abercrombie that this was like when they were like the cool you know brand that you liked wearing and i knew them from high school as being like a you know a very fashionable kind of premium brand for for teens. And that was like retail boot camp. So everything that I learned business-wise was at Saks Fifth Avenue. Everything I learned about product in terms of developing, sourcing product, how to present it in stores, how to put color together, how to see color, um, and think about consumer behavior. We'd go to colleges and interview college kids and you know go out with them, talk to them, find out about their their preferences. And all of that was like, a different kind of training that was true vertical retail training. And this is this is the late 90s. So there are different eras in retail. And the era that I worked heavily in was mall-based retail expansion. So training with a vertically integrated retailer like Abercrombie & Fitch led me on the next few jobs that I took. Um, but all of them were about controlling the product and environment um, for the consumer and primarily selling through through malls. That's what I think most people don't realize is especially in the 90s, most of retail was controlled by Columbus, Ohio. Yes. It's like you never expect that. But then when once you learn about L brands and, and everything that happened in Columbus at the time and now like after – as retail started to collapse in Columbus, there's real estate tours where they'll take people around to the mansions that were built by the people who made their money in retail that are now empty because all those jobs ended up moving out. But you were there at like the heyday. That's very cool. Yeah, it was. And, and what I found though, I was working all the time. Like the, it was an amazing job. I was there two and a half years and I worked at least six days a week, often seven. And I would get in at eight in the morning and leave around midnight. And that was that was my life. So I can't even tell you what Columbus, Ohio is like. <laughs> I can tell you what the offices were like. And then when I wasn't there, I was traveling. So it would be like on on Friday, a problem would surface in Asia, and you, on Monday you'd get on a flight and go to Hong Kong for three weeks. And that that was like you know, it was a, I was twenty four. That was interesting. That was cool. But after a while, that got old. And I was like, okay, I'd li- probably like to live somewhere else. 
I was taking one of the places I would go for sourcing was LA to see denim factories. And when I got to LA, I was like, if I ever have the chance to live in California, um, that would be awesome. And the, there is a fashion business ecosystem in LA, um, but actually ended up working in San Francisco for old Navy. And, you know, I, I didn't, I, I could, I wish I could co say I consciously made choices to work for the best of every brand, you know, like Abercrombie Fitch was the fastest growing retailer in history. Old Navy was the, the premium, you know, the, the premium place to get value clothing and kind of the first of its kind. And I went there and worked for six years and did different product categories and loved it. Um, and I loved living in San Francisco, but my learning at, at Gap was more about leadership and how to manage people in a large organization. And then I dug in deep to every product category. So I learned what makes a sweater a sweater and what, how the yarns, uh, how do you pick a yarn to make a great sweater? Making denim, you know, you learn about what goes into each kind of product. And uh, I learned kind of you know, how to source and produce and design every product category in the apparel world through those two jobs. Uh, is, when is this? Like, is uh, is e-commerce becoming part of the equation now? E-commerce wasn't. So there, I was. I joined Gap in 2000, and I left in uh, the end of 2005. And Gap.com had started in the early part of that period, and there was a web presence. So uh, I think Gap and Old Navy were kind of, were some of the largest e-com brands at that time, but the the uh, dot-com boom was happening um, the first round. So you had like Pets. You were also in the heart of it yes, in San, in San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. So Pets.com, you had eBay, you know, you had these red envelope. Um, you know, e-commerce at that time just meant sell something on the internet. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter what it was. It was just like, oh, we're part of e-commerce. Um, and it was a different time because like if I wanted to have a side hustle – then selling like I don't know ties on the internet. There's no ecosystem for that. There's no platform. You had to buy a server. You didn't have to program it. You can just like build a Shopify site. It would have taken fifty thousand dollars to create a side hustle to run an ecom business back then. So it was a different time. But I do remember looking for apartments when I moved there, and you go to a, you go to a showing, uh, and like there'd be for like a studio and there'd be 50 people ready to like sign for it on the spot. That's how like competitive it was. And then like within a year after the bus, like it was, it was, it was a great place to live, but uh, it was a lot quieter in San Francisco. Well, it sounds like too, did you make the conscious decision with each of those roles? You were building on the skills. You weren't necessarily doing the same thing at each company. You were saying like, all right, I, have, I built this business side at Saks and now I'm going to go over here and yeah. learn about product. Then you had the product experience and then you learn about leadership. Was that something that you were seeking out too? Or is that just how it ended up being as you got to those places? It's definitely something I have, I have kind of, um, I have a hard time doing something that I've already done. And that's uh, probably sometimes to my detriment because I, I turned on opportunities that uh, leverage things that I've done. So when people are like, you want to hire someone, often the the brief is hire find me someone who's doing this. And I'm always like, well, I don't I've do I've done that already. I don't want that, that kind of role. Uh, so I I do look for how can I build on a skill set or deepen a knowledge my knowledge base or learn about a category that I don't know about. And it's it's rewarding for me. Uh, and also, I feel like I, it makes me a better retailer, merchant, leader, um, and it keeps me a 
really in touch with what's happening with consumers. Um, and that kind of took me forward. So I, I did something nuts. I quit my job and went traveling for a year around the world. And uh, the impetus for it was like I had worked hard from the time I graduated till I was 30. And I had traveled a ton around the world to see factories. And on these trips, I, I went to India, China, Indonesia, um, Italy, and I never saw anything. I saw hotels, offices, and factories. And I thought, this is kind of silly. You know, I could probably take a break and go to all the places I wanted to go. So I took a year off. And you also had a lot of miles to use up. Right? Yeah. I, I did. <laughs> and, and, and I had also gotten to the point of the gap where I realized there was a CEO change, like Mickey Drexler, you know, the famous uh, merchant, was the leader and a new leader had taken over. And I found that the company was spending a lot of time thinking about how people were doing their jobs and less focused on what we, what we were serving up to customers and how we were thinking about them. And the more that became a part of my job, I realized that I, I wasn't really happy um, and I wasn't learning and I wasn't, I wasn't even asked to focus on like, what should the customer, what should we do for the customer to leave them? Um, the philosophy was like, we'll just give them what they want. And that, when we got to that point, I realized, one, that I, I needed to take a break, and two, the gap was on a trajectory that they're still on today. Well, it was also like the core competency of Mickey Drexler, though, is like retail merchant prints, right? So his product, it was always the product was a focus. Yes. And then you bring in somebody else who's on the business side, and he's like, all right, it's exactly what you were they saying. They had an operator, and they've, yeah. had, they've had really talented operators lead the company since then. And probably have created a tremendous amount of efficiency and cost basis, but they have done not a lot to, to excite the customer over the years. And I think that's uh, you know something that you see in the retail world. I've seen it happen in the retail world. As businesses got very large, they became more run by operators and less so by creative talent. It's the exact argument with Apple now with Tim Cook versus yes. with Steve Jobs. Yeah, happening around the same time. It is. And I, I, I made the switch. I'm glad you mentioned Apple, and this has nothing to do with my, my fashion background. Speaking of San but Francisco. I, I made the switch to Samsung because I now use my ca my phone a lot more for my business, and I wanted the best camera in a phone. And I the S9, when I bought it, was better than the iPhone X and the 8. And I just upgraded the 10. It's still a better phone technologically than the newest iPhone 11, even the Pro. And what I see is they're iterating and not reinventing. Like the innovation at Apple has kind of stopped and they focused on the brand of being Apple. So now it's a, it's a luxury status item mm -hmm. more than it is uh, the, the most innovative technology, which is where they were. Um, so anyway. Well, the best product they've made in the past six years are the AirPods, bar yeah, none. Yeah, for sure. But you can't experience them without, the, without having the phone. Uh, and, and that. Okay, so you travel around the world. Yeah, you go to all these places you want to see. What was what were like the two places you most wanted to go to? I wanted to. I, I spent a lot of time hiking when I lived in the Bay Area, um, so I, I wanted to go hiking in Nepal. Uh, so I spent a month doing the Annapurna circuit. Uh, so you can do two long hikes there. You can without like climbing Mount Everest. You can go to Mount Everest Base Camp and then back, which is an out and back hike, or you can do the circuit around the Annapurna Mountain Range. And I picked that just because I was like, well, I don't want to do the same hike twice. If I do an out and back, I saw it once. Uh, so I picked the Annapurna circuit. It was awesome. It was such an amazing hike. Uh, and you, there are no roads. So for uh, like a month, you don't see any cars. You're just hiking through all these villages. 
and staying in local inns or like with families. And that was like the coolest uh, experience. Also very physically challenging. Yeah. But I was younger then. Yeah. You had, then, well, you had the endurance yeah. from San Francisco. Yeah. So. Was this solo travel? It was solo. Huh. So I, I hired a guide uh, to, to take me just because I don't know the language and I thought that would be that would be responsible. I did almost get kidnapped by Maoists, uh, but that's another story. And, uh, and then the, the second place I spent a lot of time was Japan. And that for me rekindled my love affair with fashion and made me realize that I, I was kind of, I was right in analyzing what was happening with the gaps business. And I wanted to get back into vertical retail and own more of the business so I took a job with a kids company called The Children's Place. Um, they were the largest specialty retailer of kids' clothing in America at that time. And I headed up the boys' business. And it was like a cool re-immersion into vertical retail where I could control the entire product and message on at least half the store. And it was like a family-run business, even though it was public. It was fun. It was like a, very, it was like a smaller lab to do things. Um, and I was happy. I was living in New York. And then I got recruited to work for Levi's to head up buying for their retail stores. Back to San Francisco. Back to San Francisco. <laughs> and that decision was really about leadership. I, there was a person I wanted to work for. And that, I had interviewed with Levi. When I, was come, when I came back from my trips, I was interviewing with a bunch of companies. I had interviewed with Levi's, but I ended up taking this role at Children's Place and then they got a new leader in uh, for the retail division. And I was like, okay, I'd love to work. I, was, I wasn't thinking about moving. Uh, but that ended up being the, the, the favorite role I've ever had. Uh, Levi's, everyone knows Levi's. When I worked for Levi's for four years, anywhere I went around the world, uh, someone had a story to tell me about their favorite Levi's jeans or an experience with the brand. And that was like a brand experience. So working for Levi's was a brand experience. Um, really thinking about above product level, about like how a brand is positioned, how it's marketed, um, how to engage consumers at different levels. Uh, it's so much more than just the four walls of a store. It's uh, consumer segmentation. So you, they sell Levi's at Kohl's and you can buy it now, I think, at Bar you know, you could buy it at Barney's, you could buy it at Saks Fifth Avenue. Uh, and it's still Levi's. So you have different consumers having different experiences with the brand and you have to create that. And, and what was the role you had at Levi? So uh, I had two big roles. One was heading up the, the full-price retail stores, merchandising. And in that, I had all these moonlighting roles. So I was in, uh, headed up reinvamping the women's global denim line. Uh, it was called Curve ID. Uh, I had to collaborate with leaders around the world. And that was like a truly global project that was like nine months uh, trying to create jeans that women would love from Levi's. It's no secret that men love Levi's and women, have, women. it's lower on the list uh, for favorite brands for women. And then I uh, moved over to head up the factory store division, which is truly an entrepreneurial experience uh, because it, it had been run by a different company. Levi's took back the rights and they had really no product development like pipeline, uh, not, a, not a process for like how to, how to create product for the stores. And I know you did a video on the, the kind of the outlet model and what it's about. The, the, the outlet stores in the world, whether you call them factory stores or outlet stores, the products in those stores are designed and produced for those stores. Uh, there may be a very, very small percentage, which are like 
you know, uh, things from last season from the other from the full price stores or wholesale accounts. Um, it's almost never like second quality goods. It used to be that, but it's a full store uh, made for that location. And my job was like elevating it as much as possible to say like the people shopping in factory malls want to look great too, and they they're of the same demographic as people who are shopping in malls. Uh, not, there's not a lower expectation. They expect a value, but today people expect value when they're shopping in the mall. Uh, so I, what I did was build a team and I elevated the, I, I worked to elevate the experience and the product in the stores. And it was such a great entrepreneurial experience within a huge company uh, that I exercised product skills and then leadership skills to get things done. Okay, so you did essentially the same role that you did at Saks almost 20 years prior to that. How much did the process change from doing it at Saks to then doing it? 20 years later in a very similar capacity? The thinking is similar mm-hmm. uh, because the number one thing I think about every single day is consumers. And when you're in the retail business, you got a report card every day. Uh, of the customers tell you how they're doing. What'd you sell? Yeah. <laughs> like, did, did you, you sell? Move? How'd you do it relative to expectations? Uh, and then, you know, two days, three days, that starts a trend. And so that is the same. But the, the biggest difference versus Saks is you know, the, the accountability is on me and my team to, to create the product and lead the experience that the rest of the teams are going to deliver in terms of store operations, visual marketing, mer- you know, merchandising, all that stuff. Where at, at Saks Fifth Avenue, you're piecing together, uh, in any department store buyer, you're, you're piecing together product into a shop from multiple brands. And you want to be on trend, uh, but you also want to try to create something that's distinctive from what other department stores carry. Uh, so a similarity is when you're running retail within a company that has a large wholesale business, you want the retail stores to have an exclusive experience and product that can't be found anywhere else and is the best the brand has to offer. And when you're a buyer at Saks Fifth Avenue or Bergdorf's or Bloomingdale's, you want exclusive product that they can't find at the other stores. Uh, so the that kind of thinking is the same. Um, it's a, just a, a competitive advantage that you try to create. When without that focus, you wouldn't you'd have the same product as everyone else. So what are the some of the things that you did to elevate that um, factory store experience? Uh, so one of the things we did, I, I mentioned, like I worked on this revamping of the women's denim line, and my peers around the world saw that it's like a premium offering for women's denim. And it was, it, it was definitely made in the best fabrics. And I, when I moved over to the factory store division, I wanted to bring that platform with me just for the simple reason that if those are the best fitting jeans in the world for women, shouldn't they be in the factory stores too? Uh, because that's a Levi's store also. And uh, not everyone was on board with kind of that decision. Uh, so that was like one thing. And then bringing more of the marketing messages. So the same if there was at that time – uh, the marketing campaign for Levi's was driven by Wyden and Kennedy. It was called Go Forth. And there was uh, print, there was television advertising, and we were able to bring that into the Levi's stores so that the cues are the same if someone's engaging with the brand. Uh, and those are the early days of social media, either through that or advertising. That's kind of what they're hearing. Um, and the, so many things. Like we elevated, we changed the, reformatted the stores, so came up with a new store design. Uh, that was more uh, premium in its nature. 
um, it's like I, I wish I had pictures of the before uh, with me because like the it's one of those things when you do like wow you say like it's so cool as a team we we're able to accomplish this relative to what it was uh, and it drove great business results and then like we figured out how to take it global um, but it it's one of those things where it was more than just product product was a key part of it without the product we couldn't have done the other things like you can improve the environment but not change the product. And you probably won't get very much improvement in sales, but if you can couple much better product with a much better environment, uh, you you really make a change that the customer notices and they they vote. You know they 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 tell you whether they love it or not. Well, this is also when e-commerce is really penetrating, right? Because this is like the 2010s, and so this yes. is when you. Ha- I guess in the factory, you're not thinking about that as much, but as a brand, that's very much what they're what they're focused on. You're really starting. These are the, the times when. When brands are really, really realizing that wow, this is this is not like a side thing. This isn't the, the early days of e-commerce. They sort of thought of it as another store. Like, okay, we have this, we've got three hundred stores, and then we have this other store, which is which is the e-commerce business, and we'll just put a team together to just focus on that. And it was the team. It was the people that were like, uh, okay, I'll go do this thing, right? It wasn't like they were taking the A players and saying, go over here and build this single store. It would often be either people who were really passionate and experienced in e-commerce. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't – what I noticed, there there tended not to be a lot of cross-moving like cross moving of the team. So you know, members moving over to the e-com team are back. And now they're much more integrated in corporate organizations. Um, but in the early days, they were very much separated – and what you ended up getting is like, and there's still stores that do it today. You can tell when you shop their sites that they do, they have a different pricing strategy. They have a different, what they're pushing on the website is different than they're pushing in the stores. And you just want a seamless experience as a consumer. If you like, you know, if you like Bonobos, you want the same experience if you're shopping on your phone, if you go to the store uh, or you look on, uh, you know, on your desktop. Um, so you, 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 tr- you want a seamless uh, thing. Although, you know, with analytics, you might be encouraged to do different things by channels, but um, the consumer expects consistency, I think. That's right. So then what takes you away from Levi? I, I moved to New York to, to work for Coach. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that drove that was personal, like I was doing a long-distance relationship um, back in New York. And when I left New York, like I kept an apartment here. I just had, I always kept a connection to, to the city. Um, and and I, th- I think a driver of that was when I left New York, it wasn't because I didn't want to be here. It's because there was this great opportunity um, to work for Levi's. And over like the course of that fourth year, it just got really hard uh, to, to kind of maintain both. So I started looking for a role uh, that would get me back to New York. And of course, as I said earlier, I don't like to do the same thing uh, that I've done before. Uh, so I, I had a chance to explore accessories, uh, you know, kind of American luxury with, with coach, uh, still merchandising, learning about, uh, but learning about a different product category. So I, uh, came back and headed up the buying for their North America stores. So yeah. they were like, Chad, come do our outlet stores. And you're like, no, I need to do this other thing. <laughs> there were plenty, there were outlet jobs, not with coach, but other companies. And I was like, I don't, uh, you know, I just don't want to do that. Like, I, I don't know why I'm wired this way, but I, I kind of feel like, okay, I, I, I learned about that. I, I did what I wanted to – I accomplished what I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so now I want to accomplish something different. It makes you more well-rounded. Yeah, I mean that's like a little bit of going to the other side of the spectrum, you know, from, from a factory outlet store to like a luxury 
uh, you know, luxury brand, how much like crossover was there in terms of what you learned at, at your, at Levi's? Uh, there was a lot of leadership crossover. So, um, and it was different though, in that, um, Levi's was, was very much, was much more of a decentralized organization in, in, in the decision-making processes, uh, the empowerment of individuals, you know, you had more, more accountability and response. You had more responsibility, um, which led you to have more personal accountability. Um, and because of that, a lot of ideas, like my team, my job, I felt like was to lead them creatively and strategically, but to support every one of them and remove obstacles, uh, support their personal development, remove obstacles to, for them to get their job done. And when I worked for Coach, I felt like it was much more of a controlled, tops-down organization. And I spent a lot more of my time managing up um, and reporting up than I did uh, focused on supporting the team and trying to drive creatively um, the job. And the, it's the first job I really had where I, had, I could have no influence on the product. Um, it, I, I didn't really understand how that would – how it was kind of a walled-off uh, organization – the way coach is structured is more like a, or at least at that time, was more of a European fashion house model where you have a creative director who creates and designs all the product as well as all the creative in stores, the marketing, et cetera. And that process is kind of walled off from uh, the buying team. And the You're executing the vision of the person that said, this is coach for this season, right? It's like, this is coach it, and then... It is, but you're, and you're trying to create a business case around those products versus... Uh, you know, the, the model today in most companies is much more of a collaborative thing. Uh, the, the, the product and the business case coexists. Right. And developing a business case around product is a harder thing to do. Um, and it's a harder thing to do if, if, if for some reason the, 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 the season is off, you know, or the, or the design trend is not on. Uh, so I found it was a different – there are a lot of similarities when you're, when you're leading and you're involved in buying – it's still a, it's still a creative and analytical exercise, uh, but the way the job worked at Coach was was de- was very different. And one of the things that there were a couple of things that were happening under the covers. Uh, the men's business was like booming. Uh, this was this was uh, 2012. The menswear the menswear movement was really taking off. The heritage movement was starting. It's probably two years into the heritage movement. And so menswear and men's accessories was, was this category that was like on fire within the coach business. And I thought that's kind of an interesting thing. And then the other accessories on the women's side, the non-handbag accessories were, were real, like developing powerful business. So I was like, okay, so accessories trend, like I think my, my trend hat. Okay, so accessories is a trend. Uh, can I do something with that? Like can I create a business around that? And I, the, I'd always – thought about every year, am, am I going to start a business, uh, my own business? Some, you had the you bug. Know, I had the bug. Yeah. And part of it was kind of the, I always viewed my role as like a buyer as kind of an entrepreneurial thing. Um, you know, I was using someone, someone else's money. I was using the company's money to, to try to deliver a return for them and, you know, create something that's exciting for the customer. And I knew, I always knew I wanted to do something. And I never knew what it would be. So the thing that kept me from um, starting a business was I didn't know what that business should be. I was I was saving money. I was learning skills. And it was kind of like when I was working at Coach, I was like, okay, that's something that could be something. And so my next step was like starting the Lodge. Uh, and the Lodge is 
a it started as a men's accessory company focused on supporting American makers. And the driver of that was I, w- I saw the, the men's accessory thing happening and I was traveling around the world to look at trend. And I would discover, especially in Japan, these American makers that I'd never heard of. Uh, so like there's this leather maker in San Diego called Coronado Leather. They make beautiful leather goods out of mostly Horween leathers. Uh, there was this backpack company called Drifter there in Ohio. Um, you know, many so of these the, were American makers, though, that you discovered because it, consumers in Japan yes. love the Americana aspect yes. of it. And I thought this, this is this is kind of interesting. There, these brands exist. I'm in the fashion world, and I don't know about it. Uh, and even though I'm like, this is like blog. This this time period is when is is when blogs are really the where the the venue to deliver style information to people. And this so, is when a uh, friend of the show, Dan Trapanier, is really is really exploding yeah, here. And, yeah. and best, best man of the year. Yeah. All that, yeah. yeah. So so these, these these Japanese menswear enthusiasts are basically discovering these like heritage American brands on like Reddit and yeah. and uh, Tumblr blogs. And I would, but the thing is, I was reading all these blogs, and I I still didn't know about these brands until I went to you know I saw them in Japan. I was like, okay, so this is there's this, there's something I can do here, which is do some work to try to bring American focus to these makers that don't really have a following yet in America. And so that was the, that was kind of the rough business model. I I wish I could say there was like a, you know, like a a 30 page deck on like consumer behavior and all this, but it was, is literally that as a seed for a business idea. So I, um, I had never done an e-commerce business. uh, So I, I started learning. Got to have something new. Got to have something new. Well, and but but that's something that I've discovered too is the the guys that are making the San Diego leather maker that's making these beautiful products. His competency isn't marketing and selling online, Correct. right? He just wants to make this stuff, and so you see the opportunity to say, "I know how to market this stuff. Yes. I've merchandised before. E-commerce can't be that hard. So let's let's go off and do this." That's exactly it. Got it. So let me let me do that work for them and and curate an assortment of brands that ha- would that have a high level of quality stand behind their products um, are cool. They may not be high fashion and are American made and I can help tell their stories. Uh, so I, I learned how to, this was like, I, I would say probably one of the earlier adopters to Shopify I created a Shopify account, uh, started figuring out how to design a website. Hopefully you bought some stock. <laughs> I wish I had bought some stock. <laughs> it would have been a better investment long-term than the watch. Uh, so I, you know, I built a, an e-com store, got it live by Father's Day of that year. Um, this I left, is, I this left, is. this is 2013, so I left Coats like in early spring and then uh, I was like, okay, I need to figure out quickly how to, how to do this. Um, and the first couple versions of the site were terrible. I mean, when I, it's just awful, but you know, you were always working on improving, but I got live by Father's Day in the first like 60 days. I was like, wow, shit. Like I bought some Google I don't know if you're going to – sorry, I swear. That's okay. uh, we have to put the little E symbol by this episode now. <laughs> I, uh, I bought some Google, ad, you know, Google ads uh, to, to get people to the site and it, it was like doing a lot of volume in 60 days. I thought, okay, this is – there's something here. This is worth trying. This is worth figuring out. Did you have trouble partnering with the brands? Like what was the – what was that connection like? I – so I literally just started calling the brands or emailing them, depending upon where they were. And uh, because of my background, they knew I was serious that I, you know, I wasn't, uh, 
you know, I wasn't like gonna try to buy their product and sell it at 75% off or do some flash sale stuff. Um, oh, that, cause that was the era of the flash sale. That was the era of the flash sale. That was guilt group and that was fab. I I remember those sites. I bought some weird shit in that time (laughs) on the internet cause I was like, oh, 75% off. I gotta buy this. It's limited time. They only have like 13 of them. You know, they're gonna pull the trigger. There's Uh, a countdown timer right there. (laughs) So that was a concern of a brand. It was like, is, are you gonna end up putting our product on a flash sale site or how are you gonna present it? You know, we want to make sure our story is told. Uh, so probably the hardest brand to get was Filson. Um, at the time, and I had to like corner the one of the, the head of sales at a, at a trade show and show him after our site was launched. I wanted to launch with Filson, but I couldn't get them yet till I sh- till I designed the site and showed them the other brands they would sit with. Um, and I was able to bring them in, um, and they're you know rightfully very protective of of their distribution. So it just once I once that was going, then it was it just got easier. Once the site was live and they saw brands that I was able to curate, uh, getting new partners was just got easier. And I did a lot of hunting, like you know, I'd go through Etsy and find makers. I'd like this is still early for Instagram, so you know you wouldn't even find these makers on Instagram. I would go to trade shows, but over time, what I realized is if they're at a trade show, it's too late. Um, if, if they're a trade show, they have the resources to They're to, big to enough to invest in the trade show. Yes. And so, so yeah. So then they have the exposure that I can't really add benefit um, to what they're doing. And so that was the model for a couple of years. Uh, within that, like we've partnered with over 250 brands. Uh, the the One of the downsides of focusing on American Made is that probably about a third of those makers went out of business. Um and then the other two thirds, like they grew with us, but then they also grew their capabilities with with e-commerce and marketing as tools improved. So, and, and what's the storytelling? You're saying you were also doing like blogs and features. We're doing blog features. You know, are, are uh, doing social media posts about them. So you had the content arm. Too. Had the content arm, yeah. and then sharing that through our newsletter, and then on our site. Um, you have a team at this point. I had a team at the, so the first. The first six months were like a solo effort. And then, uh, so I started, I, I literally started this business in my garage. I was renting a house in Pennsylvania. Um, and I, I like set up a photo studio. I had to learn to photograph. I didn't know how to photograph. Uh, but I, I learned, I realized I'm probably gonna have a thousand SKUs or more. Um, and if, and I need to rotate products. So if I hire a photographer, that's going to be expensive. Can I learn to do photography in a way that I can get it like 80% good, you know? Versus a hundred percent perfection, um, and I so I I set up a photo studio. I ran, I like was shipping all the orders, uh, taking them to the local post office, and then I moved uh, the operation to Brooklyn and got like a, a space and like started hiring uh, to help with it. So, and then from there, I was like, okay, I'm in New York City. There are like ten million people here. I should go where the people are. Like when you're in e-commerce, you're focused on getting people to you. Uh, in retail, I was like, okay, there's people here. Let me go to them. So I started doing pop-ups. And when I realized the people loved hearing about the stories, like, okay, tell me about, they like pick up, tell me about this wallet. A lot of the questions were like, why is this wallet $130? Mm-hmm. Or it'd be like, tell me about this wallet. It's kind of unique. And then you could tell the story of the, of the maker and why the product is what it is. And that is a, is a, easier thing to accomplish in person than it is uh, digitally. Uh, so as I was doing pop-ups in the financial results and the engagement were, in, were so positive that I, I was like, okay, I have to open a store. 
Well, you said you had done like dozens of pop-ups in yeah. one year, right? You did a, yeah. it, and it's it's no small feat to like not only get, land the space, bring the stuff there. Like it's it's a big it's a big deal. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that work was like I like I would do it. You know, if it, if it was a small enough pop-up, I would manage it. Uh, pack up the merchandise or have people pack up the merchandise. Then I take it to wherever the pop-up was, unpack it, merch it, sell it, pack it back up, go home. And that was like a very, I'm glad I did that before opening a store because it allowed me to create the visual language of the store and how I saw product working together. Um, when you have to show up into different spaces, like it could be a room like this, or it could be a room with totally with like one wall and the rest of the sides are open or you had to do a pop up in the middle of a, a you know like a basketball size room a basketball uh, court size room you figure ways to like create engaging spaces that are also on brand, like on brand for you and so i had to doing that dozens of times helped me formulate what i would want my store to look like uh when i decided to open a store so after a year, we opened a store in New York, um, and you know it was a, a, a cute—I wouldn't say I can't say cute, but it was like a cool shop, but a small because it's New York City. It was a boutique. It was a boutique. Yeah, uh, we did it in Greenwich Village, and I ran that for five years. Uh, and our, our I closed it uh, at the end of October. Our lease our lease was up, um, and over time. Some things happened in the business that I saw opportunity in, one of those being grooming um, and another being uh, the ability to create our own brands and tell our own stories. Um, so I created a leather brand based on a heritage company called Wilt, um, created a, a men's grooming brand called The Man Shop, um, and it has. Uh, I started with cologne and then we made home scents and then skincare and uh, a couple of other smaller things that were like one season tests of brand brand concepts. Um, but the grooming thing, uh, started to take off, started to evolve with my own interests, with my own needs as I'm getting older. And then also just my awareness of consumer behavior, um, with Instagram dating apps, um, you know, more casual workplaces, the needs of guys, guys are more aware of how they're dressing. They're aware of uh, they're how they look they're seeing themselves on camera so much more they're seeing themselves in photographs and you become aware of the things that you didn't bother you before suddenly bother you mm -hmm. about your skin about your hair and you start to look for solutions and if you're a man today the the easiest place to find answers is on the internet you think but the hardest place to find answers that work for you is on the internet. Is the internet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, as I was like, guys were coming to our store. We had a relationship with men. So got, we, our, all our products were focused on guys. We had unisex stuff, of course, like a, a, a wallet could be carried by, by a girl as well or some of our skincare. But my focus was like on guys. And so guys, I think, started to trust us. And they would come in and ask about – they'd tell us personal things about their relationships, about their work you know, things that are, make them happy, things that bother them. And more and more of those conversations evolved around, like started being around my hair is thinning. Uh, like I, I'm strangely getting adult acne. I'm 35, you know, just stuff like that. And they're like, what do I do? And I'm like, we don't really have, I can tell you what we think. We don't really, we're not experts and we don't really have the product to help you with that. Uh, but maybe we should have the product to help you with that. Maybe we should have, uh, some, we should learn about what to help, how to help people. And so 
it, this was like two years ago and it just started bugging me. Um, and that's, it's one of those things I thought, okay, if I, where do I go for help? I don't know. Like it's trial and error. I buy something online and I get it in and it either works or it doesn't. Uh, and what I don't know is I think it works, but maybe if I tried something else that works better, I'd realize that that thing didn't work. There's no Sephora for guys. Why is there no Sephora for guys? You know, Sephora doesn't have to be a, for one gender, but the way it's set up and the way it's designed and it's just, it, it's not for me. There is a Sephora for guys. It's called the guy that follows his girlfriend to there and has to, <laughs> has to look around like he's interested. And, and go to the and, one little <laughs> corner with the men's fragrances. Yeah. And he's like, oh, this is looking. The only thing in the store in Sephora is men's fragrance. They don't have yeah. any, any men's skincare brands. They're all online. Um, Ulta now has like a tiny, you know, they've got like your shelf for men, Blue Mercury, you know, they've got Jack Black and that's it. And Target it, interestingly has beard brand who we've had on the, the podcast before. Like they're in the Harry's. They're starting to like yeah. get there. It's like retailers are like, oh, I see things. Something's happening. Let me put as little effort as I can to this and then yeah. see what yeah. happens. I'll go on the record and saying that Target today is the has the broadest men's assortment of, of grooming products, not evenly across their store base, but in the stores that that are meaningful for their business. They've, they've really put together a strong men's assortment. The, the downside of that relative to the specialty beauty model is that you can't try any of the products. Uh, and there's so, no experts. That's, that's probably the other biggest no thing is if they, yeah. if you want to find somebody in target, you go to the front checkout line. It's yeah. like, there's not really people roaming the store. It's, like it's it, also like some seemingly pretty high end or like niche stuff like beard brand, but then it's right alongside the grocery store brands. Yeah. So you're, you're like, well, you know, where, and, where am I right now? And they're private label, you know, so they've got, right. you know, like a, the $1 shave cream they created to cop to like go head to head with Brandless right. next to, you know, Cremo and Beard Brand and Harry's. Yeah. Um, so it, there's a broad range, but the, you can't try any of the product without buying it. And that is part of the discovery experience that tells you, you know, even though they've got a lot of choices, it, they didn't really make it any easier because you're still staring at a shelf full of bottles. And... That's what I was trying to crack. So this bothered me for a while. And after the holidays last year with the lodge, I was like, okay, so our lease is ending in October. I have to make a decision anyway. And are we going to continue in this space? Do I find another space? What do I want to do with the business? Um, but the, the accessory side of the business was getting very, very competitive. I, was, I felt like I was competing with the brands that I was carrying. And it was getting more expensive to advertise, uh, which is I'm not the first person probably on this podcast to say that, and I won't be the last, but the the, the ad rates uh, across the spectrum have, have dramatically increased. So again, What you also said, too, is like now for the guy, for the San Diego leather maker, he can make a Shopify site, yes. just not just as easily as you could, but he didn't need the support like he did before Correct. Uh, to have that that kind of platform. Definitely the capabilities uh, of, of my partners in, in, improved dramatically and and I'm actually happy. That's what I wanted to happen. So the if I did my job correctly and I believe in the mission, then the maker, every maker that we do business with increased their business. We got new customers for them. We bought their product and sold it. And it's a net positive. And that's the mission. And then consumers are happy because they, they got great products that, that is also unique. Um, you know, they're not going to go to a meeting with the same tie as someone else. You know, th that's the kind of thing that I, that I looked for. So we delivered on that mission, but I was like, as I think about what I want to be doing, that's just getting harder to do. And this grooming idea is something that I just want to test. So I, I flipped like the front of our shop and I built out essentially, uh, a, a beauty space for guys. 
And I call it beauty intentionally just because it's a little disruptive in terms of term, but it's really about making having enough products across the spectrum of, of needs to, to, to be able to help every single skin type that walks into our store and every sort of hair type that walks into our store. And partnered with about 20 brands. Uh, I, I, I strayed outside of the Made in the USA, USA thing and brought in a couple of Japanese and Korean brands because when we're talking about skincare, we're talking about technology. And superior technology exists outside of the U.S. for skincare ingredients. And you, you can't really have a, a comprehensive offer without including Korean skincare. So uh, I built out this... Uh, this new concept. I called it Consigliere. I created a website for it and then put the name on the door of our shop in East Village and uh, opened it, I think, in March um, to create this experience for guys. So the concept, it wasn't so much Sephora for guys as it was really uh, guidance and advice and then having the product to help. And if we don't have the the product we'd help, we'd tell you where to get it. Um, So that was uh, part of kind of an interesting twist on the journey of being in the clothing and fashion business, I would say. Now to go for the, what, seven or eight months, right? So March to October? Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Our conversion was extremely high. Um, so in the, if you're in the e-commerce business, like conversion on your site is going to be between one and a half or three, one and a half to three percent. If you're like exceptional, it's above that. If, you know, if you get a lot of traffic that's bouncing, it's below that. In the retail world, you're looking for about 20% conversion. Um, you can be 30 if, you know, you're a, a destination kind of store different than like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or Target. When you're going there, you're buying something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not just browsing. Um, so in the Lodge store, when we were doing accessories, we'd average about 36, 37% conversion. We were getting 60% conversion on the grooming products. Um, but what I, what I learned was as a destination, it's not, a, it, it can't be a destination on its own. Uh, so what that means is there's not enough draw for guys to go out of their way to, to come and shop in East Village for grooming products. But if we can get them here to the space, then they'll, we can help them find the right products for them. So I learned from the test it's a good business as part of something else, mm-hmm. um, but not as, as a full grooming business today You know, in this model. Um, but it gave me a pretty deep education about skincare products, grooming products, the ingredients that go with go in them, and what to use and not to use uh, in in products. Um, I still have our our in house men's grooming line called the Man Shop, and we're developing products for that, um, a more comprehensive skincare line. And that education has helped me. And in my research in building out. Consigliere. I like went to Korea to study skincare brands. I went to Bali to study natural skincare. I did an in-depth survey of the whole beauty market in the U.S. So like now I'm like a an odd like <laughs> skincare and beauty expert. What uh, also gave you frontline retail experience that you were you would have been separated from at being in the retail space. You were doing more merchandising, management, leadership, yes. and that sort of thing, and you hadn't been like standing in a shop trying to get the, the conversions and that sort of thing. Exactly. Like, the entire entrepreneurial journey of the Lodge was complementary, but added depth to all my experiences being a, being a retailer. Uh, because I hadn't, other than like, you know, a few a day here or there where we worked in the corporate office, corporate office we'd like go work in the store. I hadn't actually worked in a store until I started my company. 
and like the difference between an aggregation of data about consumer behavior and having people come in and tell you, this is what I'm looking for, uh, or I like this or I don't, uh, or having a conversation about trends or product. It's just a totally different context and so much richer in terms of information. Um, and then I had to learn about, I don't know, accounting, uh, HR, hiring laws, um, managing different kinds of people. So um, the, the skill set of a part-time retail worker um, might be different than uh, a senior level buyer on my team that I was managing. Um, so helping everyone develop based on what their needs are. You know, I, I had a, kind of a different team than I would have had in the, in the corporate world. Um, you know, my entire team through six years has been pretty much been millennial, uh, you know, young executives or people working in the stores where my, my team had different levels of age and experience uh, in the corporate world. So I had to learn a lot about managing and motivating uh, people of different uh, backgrounds and skill sets. Um, so it, it's, and I had much more in-depth uh, learning on visual merchandising and like storytelling through product placement and then thinking about the marketing, like what do I want people to see uh, on their phones when they look up any of our businesses. And I'm, I'm not young, uh, so learning about Instagram, you know, at age like 38 or 40 is, is a different experience. It's probably the same way I feel right now learning about TikTok. TikTok, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Me on TikTok, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm definitely getting old. This is weird. Yeah. When I'm, I, I go on TikTok because it's like, it's, it's entertaining, but also like I, I'm trying to understand like what, what people are doing you know, with their time. And I, I'm like, what, like, I like, can't believe the stuff that like 12 year olds are talking about. And then uh, it's so like, it's just the, the, the way of communicating and sharing is just so different you know, than it was even five years ago with Instagram and Snapchat. Uh, so the, the, the one thing that I know that is a truth and it's a timeless truth is that things will never be the way they are. They're always going to change. Uh, so you have to constantly embrace change and you have to try to predict the next change, um, and take yourself there. Not so much to like say, I'm going to make a fortune cause I'm ahead of the trend. Just so much. So you can put, take, you can change your mindset to say like, okay, the way I might be happy with the way things are right now, but it's not going to stay this way. And I can let thing, I can let it change and affect me, or I can actually realize that it's going to go that way. Well, it's also the history doesn't repeat at rhymes, right? So like yeah. you got to see like, are this stuff happened over here and this thing, you know, and it's like, you're saying like you saw men's accessories exploding. You saw men's business exploding. You saw accessories exploding, put those two together, e-coms over here, yeah. and then you have a winning formula. And so that's very cool. What is, what are some of the things that you notice trend wise for, the mistakes guys make with skincare. Is it washing their face with a bar of soap? Because that's what I keep hearing. Like women will say that all day long. Um, the, the biggest mistake really is uh, the first mistake is, is not taking the step to like self-identify. Um, and what I mean by that is understanding your skin type um, affects all the decisions you make, positive and negative. So um, – Using a bar of soap to wash your face can be fine, but um, it's a highly al- you know it's it's your skin's slightly acidic. Soap is highly alkaline, and bar soap is even more so than like a liquid face wash. Um, so it can be just exceptionally harsh and drying on your skin. Um, but you know you might be a guy with 
incredibly oily skin and tough skin and like it's not going to have any negative impact. But um, the most important thing is like you, you have to kind of think about it like brushing your teeth. Um, and if you think about a, a skin regimen, um, it is like brushing your teeth. It is something that you actually do need to do and figure out what works for you. So your, your teeth need, you know, everyone's teeth are different, you know, some, uh, like you might need a, a firm brush or a soft brush or a large. I need sensitive of, toothpaste. You need sensitive toothpaste yeah. or some, you need some like a whitener, whatever that is. Uh, that menu also exists for skin and whether your skin is oily, whether your skin is dry or some level in between dictates the rest. So it dictates the right kind of face wash for you. It dictates the right kind of moisturizer for you. And it dictates the right kind of corrective treatment or healing treatment. And the, that's the first mistake because if you start hunt, what we do as guys is we, we hunt, we hunt for solutions. Uh, so when something happens, then we look for like, okay, I need a solution. I'm breaking out what, what's out there. Or like, uh, it's weird. I'm getting my head shiny. Like that didn't used to happen. How, what a shiny head, you know, you, you Google it. And that's how, that's how we like, we want to find the solution, solve it and be done with it. We want right? the hammer right now. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it just, uh, what happens is like stuff of stuff happens as you age. Um, and your, your, your skin goes through different phases and you have to, if you know that going forward, then you're prepared for it. But it all starts with the, uh, knowing your skin type. So for, for me, I've tried all, I, I used to have like, just like kind of like mild acne and even as an adult and, uh, and I tried all different, like all the major active ingredients. And for some reason, adapalene is just the thing for me. It yeah. just, it just changed my skin. And so it, I feel like a lot of guys just don't try enough different things before they find something that just works for them. And that's the, the, what you just said is very important. What works for them is the key because what works for you would be different than what works for me based on just pure skin chemistry. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes shopping for it so hard because the review-based system that the internet is based upon doesn't take into account your own skin type or your own needs right. and that creates a trial and error kind of process so you're right like the you have to you have to try a bunch of things to get to the answer and often that and that answer is going to be different than someone else yeah so we, we got to wrap up but uh, real quick like next six to 12 months what are you most excited about um so i'm i'm actually exploring uh going back into the corporate world uh from this entrepreneurial journey and that's like an it's an exciting thing to 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 think about uh, because I've collected and honed different skills than I had when I was was in the corporate world, and so what I'm trying to solve for is what I just said is like where will things be five years from now, and how do I join something that's going to get ahead of it and not be backwards looking, um, and that to me is is the most exciting thing. Well, I would do a whole hour just on Chad describing <laughs> skin types and skincare because yeah. uh, I'll do a bonus episode on that. <laughs> I've tried. I've tried to get. I want Chad on my YouTube channel because there's there's just not good information for guys out there like this, and that's why. Like when we had we had coffee a few weeks ago, and I just I was just like, just tell me more. It's like mm -hmm. I want to know more because my wife helps me out a lot. My wife will like get me uh, like moisturizers and washes and everything, and she's really into the ingredients, but there there isn't really that for guys, and so it's it's very fascinating. So you have a you have a, a real gold. 
uh, treasure trove in there. So. And, and the caveat I would give, uh, that's a, like my girlfriend is, is a, uh, the same, like a ton of different kinds of products and I've discovered new brands through through her like cabinet. But one of the things that there's, is definitely different in a woman's regimen, especially at nighttime, is, uh, is the use of oils on the skin. So a lot of oil-based serums or uh, women tend to apply at the skin to help the skin recover. And most guys tend to shy away from the oil because especially if you're younger, skin tends on the oilier side. Um, so there can be a different reaction to, to adding oil-based serums to the skin. Gold. That's yeah. what I'm telling you. All right. Well, should we, where should we point people to just because uh, you get the lodge still running in the man shop? Yeah. So the go to, go to the man.shop um, and you'll see a, a, a solid core line of men's skincare and cologne and uh, in the first quarter of next year we'll have more uh, serums and that sort of product and then lodgegoods.com has uh, some of our favorite accessories uh, more in a scaled down form that we had in the store but uh, all American made things like wallets uh, valet trays gloves that sort of thing fantastic yeah. well Chad thanks for coming to the button up podcast really appreciate having you on it's a pleasure to be here and in, in, we're in the middle of the garment district in New York City so it's a, a fantastic place to talk about uh, fashion and, and retail that's right alright thank you thank you